Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Dr. Justin Winsenberg and me, Stephen Jones. Today's episode is Part 2 of our conversation with Holly Beers, in which she helps us better understand women's experiences in higher education and ministry. What was the highlight for you this week? I think a highlight for me... So I was actually a little late to our recording uh, just now because it was so beautiful outside <laughs> and we yeah. went for a little walk with the dog and our neighbors are also out enjoying the beautiful weather. I just, I don't know, it's been cloudy for, it seems like two and a half weeks or something. And so it's, I, I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what it feels like. And so it's nice to see the sun and the flowers coming up and all that. It does feel that way. And, and in Minnesota, like in the winter time, like it can be gray with no sun for, for like a month or two yeah. straight. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's nice. Like when the sun finally starts coming out and it's starting to warm up here enough to where, yeah, it, it, this is the time of year that you start, I start to get antsy at school because it's mm-hmm. like, whoop, summer's on its way. It's coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. How about for yeah. you? What's a highlight been? Well, a highlight for me has been um, we, we got some good news about my mother-in-law who's uh, who's been in the hospital um, just recovering from illness and everything. And, and she got moved out of the ICU. Um, she got put back up into a different unit. And now her, her progress is, is is slowly getting better, which is really good news. That is um, good they news. Don't know, they don't know how long it might be for her to recover from everything. But I mean, it was just for, for a little while there, you know, we were we were on eggshells here and it's seeming like it's, it's heading in the right direction for her. Mm. So that, that's that's something that's been encouraging this week. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. So what's a what's a low light been for you? Man, I, I'm not even quite sure how to put this all the words, but man, what uh what is going on with all of the gun violence? Right. I mean this this is nothing new, but you know, we've certainly got the the, sh- the shootings here in Minneapolis and then down in Chicago and, and so there's police gun violence and then there's the gun violence of of continual stories of mass shootings and you know that's nothing new for us, I think, in America in some ways, sadly. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do feel like you're in my generation in particular have grown up in an era where it once wasn't all that common. Right. And now it is. Yeah. Like there was, there was a time, I think, when we were kids where it just wasn't, it's not that it maybe never happened, but it was Columbine that kind of started right. that in many ways. And so I remember were, were you an still era in high where school like, then? I was, yeah. yeah same. I was a senior. Okay. I was a junior. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was an era where that was so shocking and surprising. And I'm not sure you can always say that now. I mean, you know, what I don't mean isn't that it's shocking or surprising when it happens. What I mean is that it's not maybe now as shocking or surprising that it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I don't know what to make of it. I don't have a lot of political solutions as to what to do about it, but I'm just lamenting the fact that like, we just keep seeing this over and over again. We're seeing it with police violence. We're seeing it with, with um, people just again, showing up into spaces and firing away. It's disturbing. It is. Yeah. I think when it comes to a low light, you know, we, um, I think you and I both um, are feeling the weightiness of all the things that have been happening with gun violence when it comes to police gun violence when it comes to some of the mass shootings that have happened here now mm. in this last week. And, and I mean, you and I will have a, a longer conversation, I think about this on, on our Patreon. So if, if our listeners want to hear more about our reflection on that, maybe they, uh, they can go there. Yeah. Well, so then what's a low light for you this week, other than these things here that I've just mentioned? I think a low light for me, I was reflecting with some students last night in class uh, about 
moments of discomfort that they've experienced with their faith and and me with my own faith right and one of the, one of the themes that stood out to me was just a, a couple of the women as they shared i just am so sad and frustrated about some of the messages that women have received from the evangelical church mm-hmm. and i mean there's some great books out right now there's a new one coming yeah. out uh gosh the what bars. like a day after this episode goes out i think you know there's there's so much being written and said about those things right now which i'm encouraged by but i i'm so sad about and 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 upset about the messages that women have sometimes received from the church i think many times have received from the church about uh either their own value or about you know just really frustrated with some of the messages that women have received from the church. Yeah. So what's an insight then from all of that? Well, so I have an insight in a different direction. Uh, well, here's the connection. I remember having received some of those same messages uh, in this, like as a guy, I remember hearing some of the same constructions of what gender meant. And some of them were harmful to me as a guy, but more of them, I think were harmful to women. And I remember, so I never set out to be an evangelical. I ended up kind of accidentally at an evangelical school. I was interested in following Jesus. And at the school that I was at, I had profs who said part of following Jesus is male headship and all this kind of stuff. And I remember at one point, even walking out on uh, a woman preacher, which I would never do today. <laughs> like I just, but, but I was like, Oh, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I guess like, then I shouldn't sit under the teaching of a woman. I, and today I feel like that's a ridiculous and harmful teaching. Here's the, here's a connection to an insight for me. We, we were going through, we're, we're sorting a whole bunch of stuff in our house this week. Uh, and so we're going through and in some ways re familiarizing ourselves with who we used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. I like, for example, so I had forgotten this, but Jenny had been the homecoming queen in her high school, right? Like but <laughs> we found the tiara, she put it on, you know, like, uh, um, but also some, some old things that I had written and, oh my gosh, I was a precocious jerk. Like sometimes, wow. I don't know, I'm just like, who is this guy? Uh, anyway, I, hopefully there's growth there. Um, but I, I think that sense of, so, so here's one of the specific things we noticed was Jenny came across something that she had completely forgotten about, which is that she had actually applied for a different college, been accepted to a different college and apparently had planned to go, but delayed going by a semester Hmm. and ended up not going to that college at all and waiting two years and then coming to the college where we met. And I think wow, like not only how different our lives would be, but also ways in which, you know, what, what, what's the verse from, I think it's from Proverbs about, you know, uh, what is it? A person plans which way they're going to go, but the Lord directs their steps, that kind of thing. I think, you know, just seeing God's faithfulness in in small ways, I mean, and, and in big ways and, and in, you know, leading me away from teachings that were harmful, um, you know, in developing, you know, our character. Yeah. Leading us into stages of repentance, but also leading us to, you know, a path of life together that we almost didn't end up on. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. I, I, so I, I, there's not a coherent insight there other than just <laughs> looking back and being grateful uh, that yeah. God has been involved in our lives and, and that that has involved growth. Um, yeah. How about for you? What's an insight, Ben? I don't know if I have much insight either. I've got plenty of thoughts on that particular subject that I'll just leave for another time. And actually some of it is we'll talk about this with Holly as well. But well, one thing that's interesting is that th- three books in particular have, have been published within this year or, or so um, that are highlighting some of these issues, especially calling out some of the ways within which patriarchy and male headship has been at times abusive mm-hmm. in evangelical communities. And I'm thinking of Beth Allison Barr's book that is still, I think on back order right now. <laughs> I ordered a copy and I don't think it's even uh, going to come yet for another month, but it's uh, the making of biblical womanhood. Well, I, think, I think it doesn't come out until tomorrow or well, Tuesday, oh, right? The maybe, day after the yeah, episode. That's right. You're right. Actually, you're right. I'm just seeing it now. Um, so it doesn't come out yet, but I even see it's not ready to arrive um, on the day it comes out because it's on back order. I mean, people are ordering uh-huh. it like crazy, which is a good thing. Right. But what, what, what I'm anticipating from, and again, I haven't read the book yet, but what I know of the book is that it, she does quite a bit in there to try to show historically it's, it's a historical work where she's trying to show how the idea of the subjugation of women is not necessarily a biblical concept, but is a cultural construction. Mm. And historically, she's going to show that it's very, I'm very interested to see what she does with it. Um, I'm also thinking of, of Kristen Dumais book, um, Jesus and John Wayne, mm-hmm. which started to parse out some of the ways of an evangelicalism kind of participated in and embraced the sort of machismo idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then there's um, Sheila Gregory's book, the great sex rescue. Right. Um, and I know she has co-authors as well, but we, we've mentioned that before, but each of these books seems to be really illuminating it. And I think for some people for whom that is their tradition, it can feel uncomfortable because it can kind of feel like, you know, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> I don't know, your, your tradition's getting bashed, but the sense I get from at least the two of the works that I've started reading so far on that list is that um, there's also this prophetic need in some ways to call out from the inside. And I feel like there's a sense of that happening in a way that is actually quite liberating. So I'm hoping that we have the ears to hear a bit on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just if anyone's interested in seeing some of the most recent developments in those areas, those are three books I think that are worth looking at. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to reading them. Uh, I've got, yeah. them, got them on my list. Well, I guess I've started into Sheila Gregory's book, but yeah, I, is it Gregory yeah. or Gregoire? Oh goodness. I don't know. And I wouldn't have known it was Dumay either. I would have thought it was Dumez, right. but you know, I heard someone pronounce it that way and I figured and on, in an interview with her and I thought, well, they know better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> So I apologize to, to, uh, she, not that she was listening necessarily to Sheila, to, uh, you know, uh, Kristen Dumay, if we're pronouncing everything wrong, but right. you know, yeah. um, I, I do so. think though, I am, here's, here's a, a, another highlight for me, I think. And it's along the lines that you're talking, there has been a season here, maybe a six month window of just really good Christian books coming out. Yeah. After, yeah. after maybe a, a long time where it has felt like that has not been the case. I mean, there's just so many, and I think it's speaking into these really deep challenges of the question of what is the church? What does it mean to be mm. a follower of Jesus? And how do we deconstruct, like we were talking about a few episodes ago, how do we deconstruct stuff that just does not belong and yeah. uh, really be centered in stuff that does? And I'm very encouraged by that. 
We'll be back in a moment with Dr. Holly Beers. As always, you can find out more about the podcast at profsandrooms.com. As Justin mentioned earlier, we have special content at patreon.com slash profsandrooms. Justin and I had a great conversation with Holly about how to build better mentoring relationships across genders, available for our Patreon subscribers. You know, some of our listeners are women who have been past students of ours who are interested in grad school or who have even gone on to grad school or are pursuing full-time pastoral ministries. And I feel like I've heard some stories from them of ways that they've experienced some resistance in their pursuit of higher ed or in pastoral ministries. What was your experience like in terms of just, and what has your experience been like in terms of being a woman involved in biblical studies? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mixed, I would Mm -hmm. say. So I think I would say to any women who are listening out there who are in these roles or areas or hoping to be that it probably will be mixed for you. And that's just mixed household. Mixed in the sense that there you'll probably find some really amazing spaces of support. And then you will mm. also encounter resistance sometimes. Mm. And as as long as you stay in context where people love the Bible and take the Bible, you know, quote unquote seriously, you are going to encounter people who, because of the way they read those texts in Paul's letters, for example, they are going to be resistant to a woman in a leadership role. And I've just made my peace with that, honestly. I've decided that, well, since I love the Bible and I'm in many ways actually pretty traditional and quote unquote conservative. I, as long as I stay in these circles, I'm going to encounter some resistance because of the different hermeneutical paradigms that are operating, you know, and if someone thinks that first Timothy two is the clearest way to understand women's roles, then when that person encounters me speaking on a Sunday morning at our church, they might get up and walk out, which has actually happened to me. So I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I also, I think realistically, this is what it's going to look like for women in some of these roles Uh, in the academic world. Maybe I've heard these statistics, I guess I can't verify them, but they sound, they sound true. And they're pretty, um, they resonate with my experience. About 20% of the academic field of Bible and theology is women. And, but in Christian circles, it's even that the margin is narrower. So maybe 15%. And what that means is that sometimes I get a lot of opportunities and a lot of attention and a lot of support because people are looking for women to, you know, round out that publication. We can't have all male authors, that kind of thing. But it also means that sometimes I feel like I can be almost ignored or overlooked because I know what it's like to be in a room with basically all men. And I'm the only woman in the room at a conference or at a meeting or something. And sometimes I, if I don't find the right way to kind of get my voice in there, and speak up, then I I won't often be invited to participate. So I've had to kind of buck up and say, okay, Holly, come on, you got to say something. Um, Because then the the rest of the group will just have a conversation amongst themselves and I won't ever be part of it. So, So I've had all of those experiences and more. I mean, I've had people buy me a coffee at a conference because they're so excited that I'm there and they say, please keep coming back. And then I've had people basically ignore me or, or, you know, if, if I ask a question, people kind of roll their eyes or look at me like, of course, of course you'd ask that question. So it's tricky. So in those spaces where you feel like you've been invited in so that, you know, so a panel isn't just men, like, do you, does that end up being a tokenizing experience or does it vary depending on the setting or how, how has that been? Uh, That's a great question. I would say it's varied. Sometimes I've felt tokenized, Um, but even, even in some of those moments, I I feel like I have been able to recognize what they were trying to do. They were trying to get a, you know, in a three-person panel, they were trying to get a woman up there, 
And this might be the first time they've ever even thought about having a woman on the panel where they've said, Hey, maybe we should have a woman on the panel. So Mm -hmm. I also would like to celebrate some of those small steps that I see happening sometimes and not discount every effort that doesn't match my personal standards. You know, I, I, I want to meet people where they're at and encourage them where they're at. And that's part of my whole approach with, with gender issues is I don't ever lead with my argument. Mm. I lead with my sort of relational pieces, my personality in my classroom. I lead with my expertise. I don't stand up there and, you know, the first class period and give a, a, a rationale for why I should be there. I try to show my students why I have the right to be there. And then two thirds of the way into the semester or three fourths of the way into the semester. Then we go to the gender texts as a kind of hermeneutical example of how people understand these passages after the students have already walked with me for a couple months mm-hmm. through all kinds of other texts and seen the kind of work I do, you know, then later we come to a, to the gender issue. And I have to say that's worked pretty well for me, the kind of winning people over the wooing as opposed to, to leading with the argument and expecting people to buy that before they even know me. So that's been my personal approach. Do you get a lot of resistance from students at times about your being there? Um, not overt. Mm. I've had many experiences with both male and female students where there's been some kind of resistance, but I haven't. And I've wondered if it's partly a gender issue, mm. but I'm not sure because, again, unless I develop the kind of relationship with a student where I feel like I could ask that directly. I don't want that, that to be their first impression of me either, where I pull them aside and say, is this a gender issue? I'm, you know, I'm sensing some resistance. So is it a gender issue? I don't want to frame it that way for them. Mm. So I've tended to kind of note those students at the beginning of a semester who, for whatever reason, and I don't know who they might who, who might be resistant to what we're doing in class and then i I don't, I don't want to say i target them in a bad way but i intentionally try to get to kind of know them throughout the semester reach out to them you know mention them by name talk to them when i see them on campus to kind of bring them into a space where maybe we could have the conversation if it's helpful and if they'd like to or even if they're even if we don't ever have the direct conversation where they've seen a broader kind of side of me and had a bigger experience with me than just as a woman teaching bible which maybe they've never seen before mm-hmm. so a, a few weeks ago one of our grads posted something on twitter about how she had changed denominations and how how much of a relief it was to feel like she didn't have to apologize for being a woman in this new denomination that she was part of. And so on the one hand, I'm very glad for her. And on the other hand, I'm very sad both for her and for the denomination that she left. And how, how do you process through that? How do you, uh, as you're mentoring women who are walking through, you know, discerning their call and finding their place, um, in, in ministry. Yeah. What is vocation look like? How, how are you helping mm-hmm. uh, people? And, and yeah, what tools do you use in processing through that? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. One of the things I routinely discuss with students, especially female students, but even, you know, male students too, is what their sort of core values are or the the key pieces that they can't give up. So, you know, if if by leaving your denomination that you've maybe grown up in and have been committed to your whole life, if by leaving that you are going to be leaving family, your primary community, you need to know and decide if that's worth it. And they might, you know, your family might be fine with you changing denominations or that might cause a kind of 
fissure in the relationship that might take years to heal. So are you okay with that? Being honest and as, as kind of clear eyed as we can be about the costs of making some of those moves. That's something I routinely talk about with students. I respect some of my, especially female friends who feel like they just, they can't have the conversation again about first Corinthians and first Timothy and women's roles. They're done having the conversation. They're tired. They're exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so they need to be in a place where they don't ever have to have that conversation where it's just assumed they have the right to be there. I respect that. I get that. I feel like, honestly, I feel like I have a kind of spiritual gifting because in my own, in my own sort of strength and personality, I don't think I would have it, but I think the spirit has given me the ability to have that conversation again and again and again and again. And I'm not exhausted by it. I see it as a way Mm. for me to do a kind of ministry and discipleship, honestly. And actually in terms of what we might call evangelism or that kind of gift too. you know, someone, maybe they're not a Christian, but they've heard that the church doesn't, you know, think much of women. Christians don't like women or don't give women a lot of value or credit. And we have students like that at Westmont actually, because students don't have to be Christians to come to Westmont. Mm -hmm. They don't have to sign a statement of faith or anything. And I can sit down and have the conversation with them about, you know, what they've sort of seen from a distance. And yes, these are some of the ways that different church traditions have embodied that and thought about that, but then there are other ways that other Christian traditions have thought about that and embodied that. And I can give space for them to kind of process and think without it needing to be my way or the highway. Like I I've worked really hard to maintain friendships in my life with people who are more conservative and traditional on the gender issue than I am on on women, basically women in leadership roles. Some of my closest faculty friends at Westmont are complementarian. And I need people like that in my life so that I don't ever caricature that argument So I can respect the way that they're attempting to take the Bible seriously as I am and maintaining those friendships, I would say has been a key part of my own discipleship. But I get if some people, at least, at least for a season or a stage, they feel like they need to, you know, be in a space where no one ever questions their right to be. Mm -hmm. I understand that too. But what uh, I'm, I'm thinking as two male profs in a, Bible theology ministry studies department. Mm-hmm. What do you wish some of your male profs had known about working with female students going into mm-hmm. uh, biblical studies, theology, ministry? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Oh man, I guess several things. I wish they would have worked harder at getting to know me in non-creepy ways. You know, I think sometimes <laughs> is that like, I, I think, I wonder if you guys think that you'll be perceived as being inappropriate or something. If you attempt to get to know some of your female students, I had very few male professors who attempted to build any kind of relationship with me. And I was often so intimidated, especially, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, so nervous and intimidated that I didn't always have the, the kind of strength to pursue that relationship from my end. So if there were appropriate spaces where I could have gotten to know them a little better and they had made that clear, mm-hmm. never did that, I would have jumped at the chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also if more of them would have advocated a little more directly for women. So, you know, Justin and I had the same PhD advisor. I remember telling him at one point in grad school that he needed to speak up more for women because he said, well, you know, you know, I've got your back. I'm here, you know, support you. And I said, yes. And you need to tell more people that you need to say Mm. out loud in more settings, in meetings, in classes, you need to say it because there might be someone in the class who would never listen to me say it. But if you say it, they might actually hear you and ponder, Mm. think about it. So use your voice. I said to him, so that would have, I would have appreciated that. I think too. Yeah, that's uh, man. I, it's funny to think back on your describing this experience that you had with the student because I'm like, 
did they realize that you were, and, and this is just me saying it to you. Maybe you don't think this about yourself, but did they realize you were like the best student at Bethel? <laughs> uh, no, I'm serious. I'm like, I, I, oh man, I, it bothers me. I, I honestly, I think of you a lot when I hear some of these arguments um, about women in ministry, mostly because I'm like, you would do cartwheels around any of us men in that program and that, I mean, not, not meaning, not meaning you'd be nasty about it, but I mean, like you, you, you could hold your own theologically, you're reading in the New Testament that your treatment hermeneutic, I mean, you're just above and beyond a lot of our capabilities. So it's like, there's something too about when you know people and know women who are extremely capable and then you hear hesitations by some people about that. I kind of just want to say, have you met anybody who <laughs> like, like, please like see that there are women scholars who are doing incredible work and maybe that can help dismantle some of their ideas or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's more complicated than that, but it is, but, and I appreciate you saying what you said, Justin, about mm-hmm. me. Thank you. Um, it is more complicated than that, but I, I do think that a lot of people who have hesitations haven't actually seen in action, yeah. you know, a woman who is really impressive biblically, theologically, whatever. So without that exposure, they've never had to think about it or question the framework Mm -hmm. given from the time they were a child. So, I mean, something you two can do as well is assign female authors to your Mm -hmm. students in your classes so often. And I've noticed this in my own, you know, as I set up syllabi and stuff, I tend to know so many more male authors. And Mm -hmm. part of that's just a numbers Mm -hmm. thing. And part of it's just my own education theologically. And the big names have traditionally been men. So I have to work hard harder to find mm-hmm. women who, you know, whatever they're working on fits with what we're doing in class that day but yeah. to give that kind of exposure to students too, to show them, to give them, you know, the best article that was written by a woman and to mm-hmm. talk about that in class, that can be a helpful first step for someone who's never even considered the, maybe the more kind of limiting framework they were raised with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were talking before about this fellow seminarian who asked you basically, you know, why you were there or if you should be there, how would you respond today? Today, I would ask a question. I'm a big question asker when it comes to, well, my students and even when I encounter people at conferences, that kind of thing, I would, I think I would say something like, and why do you think that? Mm-hmm. Because I know so much more now about the texts, for the, you know, the kind of key texts than I used to know that I'm, I, I doubt if I'd be surprised by any argument mm-hmm. he gave me. And I've thought through the issue enough where I, I have a response for, I think almost anything he could throw at me and not in a, a kind of argumentative, angry way. I, as I said before, my, my approach has been to do more of a kind of wooing, (laughs) um, (laughs) convincing people through their experience with me sort of approach as opposed to leading with the argument. But, but I do feel like if I asked him why he thought that, and he had to articulate why, and then have a conversation with me about it, then that, even if we, you know, walked away and we still disagreed, which we probably would, especially if it was a one-time experience as opposed to an ongoing friendship or something. Um, I, I feel like I could be satisfied with that. Because I said earlier, as long as I choose to stay in Christian circles where people are, you know, they love the Bible and are trying to take the Bible seriously, I'm going to run into people who have a different view on women's roles than what I have. I thought you were just going to say, since you've taught Greek, you just start parsing and say, take that. <laughs> <laughs> you do that too. You do that too. Oh, really? You don't think I belong here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my experience, you know, trying to basically talk over people or treat them like they know things you don't know and treat them like they're stupid. That doesn't convince yeah. very many minds. No, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a few weeks ago, we were reflecting on the podcast about some conversations that folks are having publicly just about deconstructing faith. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done work with students, you've got a pastoral heart for students, and and you've walked alongside, I'm sure people who've got a lot of questions about faith in general, but how, how have you navigated situations where, you know, people are starting to peel away the layers of their Christian experiences and might have some anxiety around their faith and whether their faith is valid or, or how to maintain faith in the midst of peeling some of those layers away? How have you navigated some of those conversations? That's a great question. And yes, I have many, many conversations, mm. especially with students, but even my own kids are starting to ask really good questions and mm. friends from church ask really good questions. And I mean, here I feel grateful because I've never been afraid of questions mm. ever. So I feel like I can give people a space that isn't reactionary. You know, if they ask me something, I'm not going to jump all over them because the question being asked is always worth listening to. So I try to affirm the validity of the questions and I do a lot of listening. And then I ask questions. Like I said, I tend to ask questions to kind of get at a little bit in in a deeper way, what's really going on there, because often the surface question actually isn't the real question or real issue. You know, there's something that happened in their life. Their parents got divorced or something. And that's actually the issue. So I ask questions. I do a lot of listening. And then I, I share a bit of my own story often with people in moments or seasons where I feel like I've been you know, sharpened or gone through a crisis, had to discard something that maybe I'd held closer for a long time, but I realized, no, this actually isn't going to work. And I kind of had to set it aside. And I try to do that as a way to say, like, you're not the only person who's gone through something like this. Like, I know what it's like. Oh, and most of the the big questions students ask, people have been asking those for thousands of years. So I almost always think, you know what? Christians and Jews have been thinking about that for 3000 years. Great question. You are not alone in asking that question. And here are the three main ways that the people of God have attempted an answer to that in the last, you know, 3000 years. And I'll give like a really brief kind of overview of each of them. And I'll say, does any one of those resonate with you? Yeah. Sometimes it does. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't, they say, I don't know. I don't know. But to give space for that too is fine. And then the thing that I do that I think in my own view is has been most helpful for my faith journey and experience and has been helpful for at least some of my students is to say, I can't hold every theological kind of view or belief in my core. And not everything should be in the core, actually. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about like what is most important. And for me, the resurrection of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, for example, that's in the core. Like if I give that up, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore because it's tied to new creation and, you know, you know the kind of Jewish evidence that God really is yeah. in the world. So like that's in my core. But some of this other stuff, like I wouldn't even put women in ministry in my core. I'd put that a tier or two out. And I, and I tell students that. So this core stuff, if, if, one, if one of those gets removed or you know bent, that will lead to major crisis for me. But something on the second or third or fourth tier out, I can sort of consider that and think about that and realize the place it's in. It's, it's way out here. It's not here. Mm-hmm. Way out here. And so I can hold that more loosely and kind of ponder that and invite conversation on it in my sort of pursuit of truth and search for wisdom. You know, I can read things. I can talk to people. And I, I have learned to hold some of those things instead of like this, much more like this. You know, they matter, but they're not core. And then sometimes if I feel like I have too many of those things that I'm pondering, it's like my hands get too full. And so I even acted out for my students. I still 
stand up and I say, okay, it's like, now I've got 10 things I'm holding. And I'm the <laughs> Then I have this sort of mental bookshelf that I, I live. This is one of my kind of primary frames for my faith. It's like a big mental bookshelf. And sometimes I decide, you know what? I need to put this one on the shelf for a while. It needs a break. I can't keep thinking about it. It's stressing me out. And besides, I've got too many things I'm holding. So I'm going to put this one on the shelf. And sometimes I put something right in front of me because I think maybe next week or next month, I'll come back to it. And I want it. I vision, you know, I do. But sometimes I think I might need a real break from this a year or two. So I'm going to put that on a shelf up here. Still there. I didn't throw it away. Still there. But it's up there. So I'm not going to see it every day. It's not going to bother me every day. And I'm just going to say, oh, I'll come back to you later when, when I have time and when I'm ready. Okay. And so I have all these kind of mentally, all these different pieces, theological things. I'm still pondering and processing that yeah. are on all these different shelves and all these spaces, but I'm walking around with my core. And then a few kind of extra things I'm pondering and I can do that. And that for me is a place where I can live. Janine Brown used to say this, Justin, I don't know if you remember, but she used to say, live with both humility and conviction. Mm. I can live in that space with both humility and conviction. So I'm not just paralyzed. I don't just sit there with nothing with my faith. Like I can move forward. I can live into what I say. I believe even while I admit, Hey, there are some things I'm sort of mm, here. (laughs) So that's, that's how I kind of think about it. And that's how I approach Mm. it when people talk to me about their faith crises. Mm. One thing I've, I've been noticing too is there's times I think where when I'm talking with students who've left Crown and who are wrestling through with questions now after they've left Crown is that sometimes their frustration isn't necessarily with unanswered theological questions. Their frustration was with the culture. Yes. And, and it's funny because I, I wonder, and, and this isn't true of everyone because some, some will look back also on the theology and be deeply dissatisfied with what they got theologically. But I, I see some students who are kind of... Um, they're kind of, I don't know what the word is, abandoning the faith or, or kind of giving, looking back on their experiences. And it's not so much, well, I can't believe this or that doctrine about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's I, the community covenant that we had was stupid. And, and I, and I actually sympathize with some of their frustrations. So have you navigated situations with students where it becomes apparent that their frustration is, is with certain fo- cultural forms of their Christian experience. And how, how do you help them navigate that and, and even encourage them to still maintain faith while being able to actually abandon a, like that kind of notion of Christianity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, I have conversations with students about Westmont's community life statement. They have to mm-hmm. find that. They don't have to sign a faith statement, but they have to agree to oh, yeah. by these expectations. Mm-hmm. And then actually probably even more often frustrations with the church as they have seen it, right? Yeah, which is yeah. Almost always about this, you know, a, a kind of tiny sliver of a state mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to anything close to the global church. So again, I feel like in these situations, I do a lot of listening and question asking to try to get at what it really is. Like, is, is it really the fact that you're not supposed to drink alcohol when you're on campus? Like, is that what it is? Or, yeah. you know, what is it? to get at what the root of it is. And then I affirm the right to at least ask about that because of course, with something like drinking, you know, different Christian traditions have different views on that. And, mm-hmm. and then I tend to ask them things like this, you know, why would, why do you think Westmont would have that? Like what would happen? What could happen if Westmont didn't have an expectation like that or in a local mm-hmm. church setting, what, what could happen in that church setting? If that wasn't one of the expectations, like, can you see why mm-hmm. the church or why Westmont would hold to that? Mm-hmm. Usually they can actually, if they've calmed down enough and then, yeah, to, to kind of give them space or give permission to leave some of that behind mm-hmm. is something that I try to do though. I'm such a, 
I'm such a fan of the local church. And as you read in my little bio that I wrote, like, I really think the local church is the hub of how the kingdom of God gets embodied in the world. So Uh I really push my students hard about not abandoning church altogether. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if they know me well enough to come to me and talk about some of these kinds of things, they know how I feel about that rampant individualism of most of North American culture and how like we are created, I think, as people to be in community with people. So like the Jesus community thing is a theme through my intro course also. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, even if you're going to leave you know, that denomination or that local church where you have so many disagreements, what are you going to do? Because can you be a, you know, a Christian on your own? Are we created mm-hmm. to be that way? And so I think they usually will take quite a bit of pushing in that area for me <laughs> because they know that I already think those things. I think mm-hmm. I'd be surprised if I didn't bring it up. Yeah. So those are some of the ways that I think through and handle that too. And I, and I tell them too, you know, the church where we're, that, that we're a part of here in Santa Barbara, I say to my students, I could critique it in a thousand ways, mm-hmm. but we have found real community there, mm-hmm. like authentic, confessional, mm-hmm. and, you know, honest community. So I could critique it in a thousand ways, but, and then I list some reasons why we're there. And, and I say things like staying, even when you just disagree and not being a consumerist church hopper, mm-hmm. even when you disagree yeah. can be one of the most, the clearest signs of mature Christian discipleship in your life. Yeah. Well, what could that look like for you? It's great. It's really powerful. And I think it's easy, especially in our era where there's, I mean, in America, there's always been, not always maybe, but there's been frequently churches on every block. And so it's easy to kind of do that church hopping, but to talk about a more sustained commitment in the midst of even disagreements and trials. Um, I, I also wonder, it seems like culturally that shifted though. Cause I, I, I feel like when I first got introduced really to Christianity, when I was a teenager, I mean, I felt like maybe it's just the community I was in, but people didn't leave churches as often. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder, do you think, I mean, and Stephen, maybe you have thoughts on this too. It just seems like maybe that has shift has happened more so in the, is it just my observation? I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm just throwing it out there. But I mean, I, I remember you You just, uh, there are people who stuck around for long times, even people who disagreed on things. Mm-hmm. And more recently, it feels like maybe the, at the first sign of disagreement or of frustration, it's like, well, forget it then. I'm out of here. I don't know. Is that, do you think, does that observation hold or? I was raised in the same church. My parents are still there even through hard times. So that's been deeply formative wow. for me. Yeah. I remember a few people kind of coming and going when I was growing up, mm. but Santa Barbara is basically a tourist town. It's a highly transient era mm. area. And I got to say, I have never seen anything like the way it is out here where people just mm. kind of flit in and out all the time. It's very mm. common and has been very disappointing for me. I think, mm. but it's, it's a part of the broader culture in a way, which wasn't mm. true in the area where I grew up. So, you know, people live here often for a year or two and then move on. Sometimes sure. it's too expensive. It's very expensive. Mm. Here. Yeah. So Stephen, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, so, so in the class that I've taught on the gospel and human context, one of the things that I've tried to think through with students is the idea that the church is part of the good news. Mm. even just looking at how when I ask students to articulate the gospel very often, it is this hyper individualistic, you know, like you're mentioning expression of, you know, my own sins, my own salvation, right. My own relationship with Jesus. And, and it's lacking this historical 
recognition of who the church is and it's recognizing and it's, it's lacking this contemporary recognition of what it means to be brought into the Jesus family. Right. And like, yeah. And then, you know, I have a little bit of fun with that. Usually like, you know, uh, talking about like, I, I didn't actually ask to be related to any of you people, you know, <laughs> and, um, but it's, but it's good news that we're part of the same family. And then, and then reflecting on, you know, believers around the world that I've had the opportunity to, to worship with and to fellowship with. And so I think, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of trends, I grew up moving around. My dad was in the Navy, so I don't have a, you know, a track record to compare to. And I, and I don't know in terms of sociological trends, but I think certainly in terms of what I see in terms of gospel formation, what students walk in with and in general, gospel formation seems to be pretty weak in many uh, students coming into college, uh, you know, even into this Christian college, but one of the weakest areas is on any corporate implications, uh, you know, of what is, what is this, what is this story? What is this life that we're invited into by Jesus? You know, in light of your passions for the new Testament and the church, what would you call Jesus followers to today? It's a big question, I know, but we have to ask you. (laughs) I, well, a few things probably. I would call them to a deeper knowledge and understanding of scripture. There's so much biblical illiteracy, even among Christians that I see. I would call them to commitment in a local Jesus community, a local church. Ideally, that's relatively close to their house even so that they, like, what could it look like for a church in a neighborhood to know each other, to know their neighbors, to be part of what the, com- the broader kind of community is up to, to invite people into, as Stephen was saying, a family and a life, a way of life that actually yeah. matters. And that's manageable because often my students at Westmont feel like, well, they know the, you know, the big things they need, that, that they could do to bring real change or something. They need to be the CEO of a really big corporation so they can mm-hmm. from top down kind of structure all the policies and all of that in ways that are more kingdom oriented. And that would bring change. And if they can't do that, then how are they going to make a difference? Mm-hmm. And what I see in the New Testament is actually most of the followers of Jesus are, I mean, I would call them the randos and the no names. Most of them <laughs> most of them, you know, if they come, if they meet Jesus and join the Jesus community in Ephesus, they stay there for the rest of their lives. Most of them. And they keep working as fishermen or bakers or weavers or whatever it is. I mean, are their lives matter too? How did they contribute? They contributed by being a part of the Jesus movement in their area by taking care of each other and by working to change things they could change and by inviting other people into it and by refusing to believe that the powers of the world are the ones that win because Mm -hmm. it's not true. So what does it mean for our local life to testify to that? I think that's something every Christian can do no matter where you are. And Christians should be the most creative people on the planet. I think inspired by the Holy spirit. So Mm -hmm. there have got to be millions of ways that this can be embodied and meaningfully in local contexts, you know, in ways that make sense in terms of where those people are. That's what the church I think should do. Christians do this with me, do this with me. That's so great. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Please comment, like, and share. Want to reach us? Connect on Twitter at Profs and Rooms or join the Profs and Rooms Patreon community. Our theme music is by Josiah Enns. Reed Peters is a recognized patron of the show. We hope you can join us for coffee again next time.